data is completely fucking worthless if it doesn't actually answer something to a degree that we're supremely confident that there's a causational relationship. How can you possibly think this has any sort of predictive capability for the economy? It's so nuts. Dan, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Dan and I bumped into each other in Miami with the 20,000 other people who were there. <laughs> have you have you recovered since then? Oh man, I don't think I've shaken so many hands and said hello to so many people than <laughs> at that conference. I mean, that was the biggest Bitcoin conference ever. Everyone came out of COVID wanting to hang out. And yeah, it was a wild time. I think we ran into each other at, a, at a, one of the clubs. Paris Hilton was there, right? Yeah, Paris was there. It was crazy. I... I had gone from like, you know, my limited social interaction just because I'm pretty introverted and suddenly there were 20,000 people everywhere and I was like, oh my goodness. So I've still been hiding. Where, where'd you park your horse, by the way? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, she was outside. She was around back. They let me keep her around back. Yeah. Hey everyone, quick BlockWorks related announcement. But from August 11th to August 13th of this year, BlockWorks is hosting its Bretton Woods The Realignment event at the historic Bretton Woods location in New Hampshire. It's going to be a macro-focused event filled with the best macroeconomists, investors, and macroanalysts talking about the future of finance. Uh, so if you want to attend and, you know, get your tickets at a discounted price, click the link in the description or use the code inflated at checkout. Hope to see you there. For the people at home, maybe you could give a little bit more uh, info on your background, where you came from, how you got here. <laughs> sure. Well, um... I kind of stumbled my way into the space. I don't think it was, uh, I think everything in life is semi-intentional combined with a bunch of random things that occurred. For me, I had a friend pay me back for a beer with a Casatius coin, those gold coins, you know, in those news art and, and all the news articles you see about Bitcoin, those gold coins that you see, those are called Casatius coins. And those were like a physical Bitcoin back in 2012 that was popular uh, to use because it made it real and made people go, oh, I get, oh, Bitcoin's this physical thing. Digital, digital money back in 2012 was still sort of a new topic. And um, so he paid me back for a beer with his Casatius coin. I started to read up on it, found out about the 21 million hard cap, which I thought there was a breakthrough in monetary policy. I had studied finance in undergrad during the 2008 financial crisis. So this sort of informed my, um, you know, my strong affinity towards Bitcoin when I heard about it. Um, after that, moved out of San Francisco. Uh, that while there, built a mobile product called ZeroBlock. ZeroBlock is like the Blockfolio equivalent in terms of functionality and popularity. And then we got bought by Blockchain.com as a product manager at Blockchain. A couple other crypto startups that I worked at Uber, uh, Rider Growth and Growth Marketing. Came back to crypto, created a company. That company got bought by Kraken. And now I lead Growth Marketing at Kraken. But uh, it's, been a, it's been a wild journey. So that's my, that's my business background, personal background. I started writing only three years ago. So um, the OGs might have known who I was, but I wasn't a popular figure in the space until about three years ago when I started to write. And I felt compelled to write because of Naval's tweet about Bitcoin hodlers. Naval Ravikant called Bitcoin hodlers free riders. And I was so triggered by that that I decided to write and I learned that I could craft a narrative to help fight the FUD. And so that's where I started to take down different pieces of FUD like proof of work, um, Bitcoin's uh, fairness or distribution fairness um, and a variety of other topics. So that was the launch of my, my personal uh, kind of personal notoriety and, and kind of personal brand. Oh, that's awesome. It's, it's funny how a lot of people I talked to, it, it all kind of started not by accident, but it was, you know, one thing led to another. It, was, it wasn't always like the intentional goal. But I know you've mentioned before that you'd studied finance in undergrad during the financial crisis. Um, can you explain a bit like how that shaped your views? 
Yeah, I mean, you're, you're walking in the business school. So it was called May's Business School at Texas A&M is where it went. May's Business School had all these tickers, you know, like stock tickers on the wall. And they're all down like negative 8%, negative 12%, all red, right? And then we, you would, you know, you're walking by this because they have like a trading center there, all these tickers, and you walk by those on your way to the classroom. And so then you sit down in the classroom and the professor doesn't know what the fuck's going on. The book you're reading is bullshit. And everyone on TV doesn't know what's going on either. And you see all this red and you're like, okay, something's wrong here. And something's fundamentally broken. Um, so that's what the feeling was like. Now, you know, there's, I think you and Nick Carter joked about this, like what radicalized you, you know, that sort of mm. radicalized me, right. Of like, I was like, wait a second, all the people that we put trust in have no idea what's going on. <laughs> and like, and they've made such a miscalculation that the entire financial system could, could collapse. Like why, A, why did anyone ever have all that power? And then B, how, how did they not know about it? So that... That's what kind of began my foray into like Austrian economics, uh, gold standard stuff. Back This is back in 20, so 08, 9, 10, graduated 10, and, um, and then ran into Bitcoin in 2012. So my mind was already prepped and ready for Bitcoin when I first heard about it. Um, it didn't take too big of a leap for me to go, oh, well, this is pretty cool. Now, on the tech side, <laughs> it, was, it was very hard to use. My first wallet was a Bitcoin QT, Bitcoin Core wallet. Um, you know, so <laughs> I, I, a Bitcoin full note is my first wallet, um, but it was a bizarre experience for a non-engineer in 2012 to get in. It was a very technical thing back in that era. Yeah, I can't imagine the, it's, it's crazy, you know, that's technology develops in general. It's like thinking about how, how things were before I would have been so confused. <laughs> um, but do you think... Even financial crisis aside, do you think it, it was inevitable? Did you already sort of have a distrust towards government institutions or was it really just like sort of the precipice of this crisis and everything coming together that pushed you towards it? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess you could classify me as more of like a free thinker. Like I, even before OAE, I was a big proponent of like legalization of all drugs. I'm, um, you know, I'm a libertarian type, uh, freedom over your body and your money. So stuff like that. Um, I was also big into torrenting. So for me, that was kind of like a torrenting was kind of an edgier thing to be a part of because you're kind of like, you know, it's a <laughs> you could download whatever you wanted. And, you know, some of the stuff was yeah, like movies, TV shows, things like that. So you've already kind of like decided to break the rules and then you start to wonder why other rules exist. Um, so I'd say like I already had a little bit of that rebellious spirit in me. Um, and then I think, you know, 08 sort of catalyzed it. Um, and then from there, Bitcoin was kind of where it found its its purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And so on the topic of trust, I think what I'm calling this period of time that we've entered is the, the bimodal of nature of, of trust in government. Because you see a lot of people who during COVID really went towards government and said, you know, oh, you know, we trust you to, to help with fiscal stimulus or oh, we trust you for vaccine distribution or we trust you to give us the right information and data. And you have another group of people that I would say I'm probably more a part of as well that looked at it and went, well, not all this fiscal stimulus seems like it's it's going in the correct places and not all of, you know, these regulations seem like they're really helping or in our best interest and, and whatnot. And so do you think because of this sort of I don't want to call it a push towards decentralization, but this push towards more distrust. Uh, do you think Bitcoin would have seen the highs it's seen now without it? This quickly is what I mean. That's a great <laughs> question. Um, 
you know, Bitcoin was built for a moment like this when people lose trust in their government. Now, will everyone lose trust in their government? That's unlikely. Some people will still have trust in their government. Some people still trust the Cuban government, right? Mm -hmm. You know, even after all these years of just neglect of the economy and neglect over social matters. Um, so I didn't expect like the whole world to change their opinion. I do think that moments like that where people distrust their government don't happen very often. You have like, oh, wait, you have COVID. And so, yeah, I do think that was an important part of, of um, having people come to realize like, oh, Bitcoin is a gold 2.0. Uh, I think that that narrative hadn't really, you know, myself and others had set that narrative of like Bitcoin's gold 2.0, Bitcoin is sound money, Bitcoin's a store of value. That was not a popular narrative in the mainstream um, mind share, right? Like uh, you didn't have classic economists, the Fed or institutions saying, oh, yeah, Bitcoin is, is, is gold. That happened in 2020. You know, that I think for me, that was an important that signaled to me that the world was waking up to Bitcoin's value and that COVID must have really um, kind of shook the world awake um, because I hadn't really seen that. There wasn't a gradual gradient of that narrative becoming more and more popular. It just sort of hit all at once right after COVID, like a little bit later that year, like uh, was it like summer, summer, winter, between the summer and winter of 2020, that's when that narrative really started to snowball. So I, yeah, I definitely think COVID helped Bitcoin come into exist and come into the awareness level of the world at a much faster pace. Now, of course, we have the micro uh, halving cycles. So technically, it could have happened all on its own without COVID ever existing. Um, but I do think the two together makes it this a very strong, uh, potentially strong bull run. A lot of people, I think, are feeling very bearish right now. But uh, I think that this is more like 2013, where we have two bull runs versus uh, 2017, where it's just more of one continuous one. Yeah, that's, I think those are all really good points. And so you actually you brought up sound money. And maybe you could explain that a little bit more and, and just Bitcoin's relation with it. I get a lot of questions. I get questions all the time asking, oh, what is sound money? What's ultrasound money? And I think there's a there's a lot of confusion on what it is or what it really means. It's made for the people at home. <laughs> sure. So there's no such thing as ultrasound money. Uh, that's, a, that's a weird yes, narrative. Yes, thank you. <laughs> doesn't doesn't make any sense um sound yeah that, by the way that's espoused by the ethereum community mm -hmm. uh, i think that the ethereum is interesting and that they should stick with dApps and smart contracts and and things like that but to try to claim a sound money narrative and i'll go into that in a minute is a, is a little tricky for them uh, compared to bitcoin so um gold is your traditional sound money uh gold is not controlled by any anyone in particular gold is is found uh, throughout the world um, in various distributions. And so no one, there's no controlling issuer of gold. And that develops a really unique relationship of humans with trust is because we can trust that the money supply won't be manipulated and won't be manipulated to the, at the whims of different politicians versus fiat currency, fiat currency being our government currency, uh, which in a moment you can add 10 zeros or whatever, how many zeros you'd like. Um, Bitcoin mimics that same characteristic of gold by being a sound money, by being a money with a supply that can't be manipulated by a central party very easily. And so um, Bitcoin's monetary policy of 21 million is set in stone. And that's set in stone and that's set in stone because the community has set that in stone. Um, people can create forks of Bitcoin where they create different amounts of that, but Bitcoin's community has bought into Bitcoin because there will only be 21 million. That's That trust in the monetary policy can only be introduced via a fixed quantity. If you have a variable quantity or one that has an, an inflation rate, 
the rate of inflation will always be debated. Is it 1%, 2%, 10%, 20%? Which one is appropriate? We'll never have uh, adequate understanding enough of the economy to make that decision, and that introduces a political attack vector. This is why I think Bitcoin singularly can, can uh, claim the sound money claim because one, the monetary policy was set in stone, it's 21 million with no inflation rate, which means there'll be no political attack vector introduced. Two, the community has reinforced those values. Uh, no one in the Bitcoin community would ever want to hold a coin that has a different monetary policy than 21 million. So even if you forked it and tried to add more, no one would use that coin. And then three, um, our trust in its future, uh, or it's the Lindy effect, or, or what is our trust in the future uh, sacredness of that monetary policy? We can own Bitcoin is the only cryptocurrency that can have that claim. Trust is required to make it all work. And with other cryptocurrencies that continually trust uh, change different parameters, and with a monetary policy, and this is what I think um, certain communities fundamentally misunderstand about sound money, and this is why ultrasound money is such a silly narrative. Um, Money, it's all about the trust in time that's been, de been developed over time. And the only way to develop trust is not with code, but with time. Humans are biological, we're not machines. We need time to build trust with something. And Bitcoin has the longest continuous trust ever built. And so you can, you can tweak your monetary policy all you want and have it be low inflation and everything else and claim that it's sound money. But the only thing that gives something soundness is our belief that the monetary policy won't change. And with every other cryptocurrency, we believe that the monetary policy can change much easier than Bitcoin's. And that's why Bitcoin's has the most trust. And I think Bitcoin is the only one that can claim or take the, take the, take the crown of sound money. Now, a lot of folks will go, oh, I thought sound money was a low inflation rate. No. <laughs> if that was the case, then the US dollar is sound money. And, that, <laughs> and it's not. I mean, the US dollar has had a 2% target inflation rate for a long time and, and mainly, uh, mostly maintain that. That does not make the dollar sound money. So low inflation uh, or deflation is not the definition of sound money. The definition of sound money is the uh, stability of the monetary policy and the belief in that monetary policy that it won't change and its, and its ability not to change. Yeah, it's funny. I was actually having a, a conversation earlier today about Bitcoin and its first mover advantages and how its network effects are so strong that even if there was some, you know, hypothetical innovation that came out that said, oh, well, this this cryptocurrency is so much better and it, it's better for X, Y, Z. And it was just an objective truth, um, like, a you know, the manna from heaven came down. Uh, it would be so hard to actually transition from, you know, from Bitcoin's network to this other cryptocurrency. So I was asked, you know, what do you think in terms of monetary regimes and accepting currencies as legal tender, cryptos as legal tender? Is, is there something that's going to just overshoot Bitcoin and, and do so much better? And I said, no, like, I think Bitcoin definitely has that first mover advantage aside from all the other things it has. Um, and my response was that if anything were to, to overcome Bitcoin, it would have to be because Bitcoin was destroyed on its own or, or through some other process. Um, yeah. I like, yeah. that. I like that framing because people have asked me, like, when would you stop believing in Bitcoin or what do you think is Bitcoin's like biggest threat? It's when we all stop believing in it. Mm -hmm. Like like every fiat currency, Bitcoin has the same principle of it's all a belief system. So the only way to really kill Bitcoin is to kill the belief in it in all of our minds. And I just don't know what narrative would be strong enough to do that for every Bitcoiner. You know, I think that's kind of like the distillation of like, well, what's next after Bitcoin or can Bitcoin die? That's my answer to that. I think that, you know, people talk about like, oh, well, this other currency could come in. I'm like, maybe there's always a chance that it could. Right. I, I just think it's so, so low that it's it's a very unlikely scenario. 
Yeah, I think there's that misconception that we have fiat currencies because we trust in the government or that we have currencies in general because we trust in the government when in reality it's we trust in each other. You know, we trust that I trust that I'm going to go to the farmer's market and, you know, somebody's going to have grown broccoli and is going to sell it to me. And, and the way the government intervenes is by, you know, allowing for that currency to be legal tender so I can trust that I can actually exchange it. So I think people get that confused a little bit sometimes. Yeah, I think, look, Bitcoin is such a weird new concept, like a lot of people. So there's a couple of ways people think about it. One is it's so foreign and weird that they don't want to touch it. Um, as John Oliver puts it, it's everything you don't understand about money with everything you don't understand about computers. And it's that, that overlap. Mm -hmm. And that's how people feel about it. Now, there's that side who don't want to touch it because it's scary. And then there's the other side who are like, oh, well, what's the next big thing? And I'm like, you don't even understand Bitcoin. How can you claim that there's going to be another next big thing? And they've been conditioned to believe this because of the tech sector, right? Everything happens so quickly in tech that new technologies fade away, new, uh, like old technologies fade away, new ones are developed. And so there's this constant yearning and look for, well, what's next? What's next? What's next? Monies don't operate that way. Monies don't get <laughs> swapped out on a weekly basis for like the next new hot social app. Um, the, the monies are a much more fundamental base layer to the economy that are uh, social inherently. You know, I think where a lot of people really get the really misunderstand Bitcoin and the whole space in general is that money isn't about technology at all. It's about belief system. And so the Bitcoin's technology is actually pretty old and primitive and, and Satoshi Frankenstein's it all together into like a really simple but elegant structure. And that just merely reinforces the rules and game theory to keep this money alive, to keep us all, and, and if we all believe in it, it continues to stay alive. But the technology didn't need to be, doesn't need to be swapped out every, you don't need to swap out belief systems every week. Um, and money is a long-term belief structure that can span thousands of years so there's no need to swap it out if it works today. Uh, and so I think that people, when they look at the tech sector, and I totally get it, they're like, oh, is it MySpace, Facebook? It's nothing like that. It's something much different and much more fundamental. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, especially, you know, not needing to swap things out if they don't work. You know, don't, broke it, don't fix it if it's not broken. But speaking of our financial system, so this the uh, inflation data came out this morning, and it showed that uh, core core inflation was up uh, four and a half percent and the CPI rose by 5.4 percent from last June to this June. And uh, I think it was a couple days ago, it was either a couple days ago or last week, I saw an article that was talking about how Bitcoin hoarding could lead to inflation in this hypothetical. <laughs> but a lot of people um, saw that and and actually, I think it, obviously it was skeptics, but, but people saw that and thought, you know, oh, this this makes sense because if it, you know money hoarding leads to to uh, inflation later on. So yeah. if, I don't know if you wanted to sort of maybe yeah, wrap well, up how that's not it. <laughs> yeah, well, there's two concerns with deflation, right? Um, it's it's uh, I haven't had enough cup of cu enough cups of coffee today, but I think you know one of them is that as prices of goods keep going down, people with, withhold spending or consuming because they expect prices to continually decline. That's fucking bullshit. Uh, first of all, like TVs and cell phones continually drop in price, but people still buy them because you need to use them. And no one can withhold purchasing for forever. You have to eat and sleep. There is no such thing as a consumer who can never purchase something because they can continually wait till prices drop to a level. They can't keep speculating on food. They need to eat the food. So I think that, that was, that's one big concern over like if Bitcoin was the world reserve currency and it's a fixed quantity, 
that uh, during the cyclicality of markets of bull and bear markets, that in a bear market, people might withhold spending and uh, people might start to hoard Bitcoin that causes prices to fall and that people would never start spending again, which is absurd. It's an absurd philosophy. Um, people have to consume and at some point they will. It, equil it equilibrates. It essentially, it equalizes over time. Uh, the economy can regulate itself. We don't need a central planner for that. The second part of deflation, and I think yeah, I think what the problem with this one is, is that um, I think it's around debt. Uh, you're the economist. I think you might know a little bit more about this. Yeah. So the I think the the main issue that uh, people don't really understand it outside of like free market thought or or economic free market economics is that we need the government to come in and boost aggregate demand so if you look at last summer when we had a you know slight deflationary period because people weren't spending everyone was like oh no consumption is down that whole keynesian thought process of money hoarding that's where it comes from keynes is that oh if you're if you're the paradox of thrift if you're hoarding all of your money and you're saving too much and you're not spending, that means there's going to be unemployment. That's directly going to lead to unemployment because you're not spending. But when you look at something like last summer, where we were all locked up, whether or not we wanted to be, whether or not, you know, you agreed with lockdowns or whatever, it's like there was nowhere to go. There was nowhere to spend. People weren't spending because there just was nowhere to go. So does that require a boost in aggregate demand? Those are the sort of questions I think economists are now starting to look at in terms of, of monetary policy and fiscal policy, at least the ones who are interested in, in cryptocurrencies, because that whole misconception is that, and you know, obviously it's media too, telling the people, oh, well, the government needs to send out, you know, checks to boost aggregate demand. And obviously within that, there were people who, who really did lose their jobs. Unemployment was the highest it's been in decades and, and rent checks needed to go out. But obviously there's a point at which it's no longer just going towards rent checks. It's the government trying to inject money into the financial system and, and alter policy. Yeah, as Charlie Munger puts it, all humans respond to incentives. Mm -hmm. The incentive for a politician is to print money to buy votes because that's literally what they do. Most politicians mm -hmm. pay for votes. That, that's how the system works. You either pay for votes via tax cuts or you pay for votes via bailout programs or, or cutting checks. And so there's a very incestuous relationship there where they're, they are <laughs> very much inclined to enter into fiscal uh, policies that are basically like stimulus check cutting. Um, or, um, you know, they do have an influence over the Fed. I think that a lot of people are like, oh, they're like this neutral party. And that's totally BS. I mean, the, the Fed is not a neutral party. They're heavily influenced by the uh, legislative and, and executive branches of the U.S. government um, and, by the, and by the private sector as well. So, um, yeah, I think that, you know, when we look at people's worries over Bitcoin, I didn't even bother to read that article. I've been around the space so long. I'm just like, I'm not, <laughs> I got enough things that trigger me on Twitter. I don't need, <laughs> I don't need to read a bunch of, you know, articles that have been written by journalists who don't understand the topic. Um, yeah, I think that what was about other arguments in there that you found interesting or, or that people thought was a legitimate argument, but you find just kind of bogus. I think in general, there's this consensus, you know, and, and economists use the terms like real and nominal. And when people see the terms like real, they think, OK, well, this is it's, it's real. They take it at textbook definition. But any in the system we live in now, any inflation or deflation we see is artificial because it's created by the government, by the Fed, by the Central Monetary Authority, by whatever. It's, we, we aren't letting market forces actually 
fix themselves or play out on their own. Now, I'm not whether or not that would actually work. You know, it works in theory. Would it work in practice? We've never seen it truly be implemented in practice. But yeah. from what I think, you know, it's it's in we, general. I think the confusion comes from from thinking from fear mongering in this sort of media interplay of like, oh, well, inflation is this terrible thing. And then inflation comes and they're like, well, actually, inflation means you're going to be making more money or def- we don't want deflation because that's a recession. And and so I think that narrative can get spun a lot. And that's how we get a lot of the FUD from, from that. Yeah. Well, let's see if I can suss this out in five minutes, but I've got a kind of a cool thought. I, I have kind of like a, a deep thought that I think might expose how this all works. I don't, you know, conspiracy theories, I think, are a little bit too, um, they sometimes they rely on a lot of like really weird assumptions. So this isn't a conspiracy theory at all. It just assumes humans will act on self-interest. Mm-hmm. So what happens is if you're a professor and you teach economics, no one teaches, teaches Austrian economics. No one. They all teach Keynesian economics because that's what the Fed and that's what all the investment banks in the world will hire people for. And the Fed also pays, by the way, tens of millions of dollars in research a year to the universities to write up stuff that supports that what they do works. <laughs> so it's this weird flywheel effect, right? And and no, there's no like evil person behind the curtain making all these decisions. It's just the professors are incentivized for their career to do that and to make up data that supports that decision. Um, because to, to go against the grain, you're going to be left out in the cold snow. No one's going to hire you. No one's going to talk to you. It'll be very frustrating. I mean, being an early Bitcoiner, like that, that's how it felt. No one believed, everyone thought I was a lunatic, right? Friends, family, lovers, coworkers, they thought you're all nuts. Um, I mean, Bitcoin is $10 when I got it. And like, no one believed in it. The, the, the value of Bitcoin, like the price represents the aggregate belief in it. It's a good compression of all that information. So, um, you know, so you've got, it's too scary for the world to think that no one's in control. So people, when they're fearful, so the population, when they're fearful, they give people power to solve problems that they think they can solve. But in reality, the people in power take that power to go do whatever they like with it. Um, Now, most of the time they try to go solve these problems, but they do it really shitty. And they usually hire all their buddies to get compensated for it along the way, like defense contractors. And with, uh, (laughs) with the economy, you've got like all the investment banks. So what happens is the population's scared they give institutions like the Fed and the government more power. They use that power to fix monetary policy, but in reality, they have no idea what they're doing. There's no possible way that they could influence the economy effectively because what that means is that they could predict the future and they can't predict the future because the only way to drive the economy would be to know the future and be able to steer your way out of certain situations. But as we've seen through a hundred years worth of data that they do that extremely poorly. Um, such a poor track record that going by random would probably be a a better sort of outcome. Now, in the tech world, we work with data scientists internally. So when we experiment with different things on how people interact with the Kraken product or the Uber product that I formerly worked on, we use data, like actual data science to prove that the action, that the changes that we made led to an incremental change in the usage of the product. We turned the button color blue and more people clicked on it. But we have all sorts of statistical significance calculators and ways that we can we can evaluate causational relationships. With the economy, it's so massive and so many different things are happening that it's impossible to determine any causational sort of relationship um, between like 
weather and grain prices and, and how many Ubers were taken. The, the Fed can ingest trillions of data points a second, crunch that, analyze it, and then output that. Um, so a, kind of a, a really tight distillation of this is imagine the economy is a car and the driver of the car is the Fed. Now, you can't look out the front windshield because you can't see the future. So you use the rear view mirror, <laughs> historical data, and you're like, well, maybe the road in the future is gonna look like the road in the past. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's ridiculous, right? Like no one would ever drive a car that way. And then if they press the gas or brake or steering wheel, you know, like the gas might take five seconds to kick in or the brake kind of works or the steering wheel works a little bit. But what Bitcoin represents and what, uh, like what Bitcoin represents or a free market or a sound money system represents is the car is autonomous, it drives itself. It knows that it can't predict the future, so it just reacts to the road as it hits certain speed bumps and it self-adjusts. And so that's ultimately what Bitcoin is rep uh, you know, in representation to the existing system. And that's where the existing system with all the journalists and all the uh, university professors and all the people in power, they all work together on this, not because of some crazy conspiracy theory, but because it's all in their self-interest to keep the game going because the game for them is very lucrative. They're all part of the same system. Um, whereas Bitcoin breaks that entire mold. And that's why we see people be so negative about Bitcoin, uh, formerly from investment banks. Now they're all kind of jumping on board, but the investment bankers were really against Bitcoin, same with the economists and journalists, because Bitcoin invalidates kind of this core underpinning of society, this money layer, and that money layer touches all these different participants in the economy. I think that's a, that's a fantastic analogy. And it's funny you mentioned the thing about nobody teaches Austrian economics. I come from George Mason. It's it's actually pretty Austrian. And when I go to conferences, I am I am like <laughs> I'm excommunicated. I will be like, oh, yeah, I go to Mason. They're like, oh, one of those. And so one of the things we're taught macro um, one of our foundation classes of macroeconomics with Larry White. It's like the first thing we're taught, you know, the Fed doesn't have perfect foresight. Nobody does. Therefore, the Fed can't tell us what it's going, it doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. So it relies on this rear view data, which isn't always accurate and also is heavily lagged. And I think we're seeing that a lot in terms of, you know, the Fed, Jerome Powell keeps saying, we need substantial further progress. We need substantial further progress. I read all the Fed minutes uh, and this substantial further progress is labor is what he wants. He wants it to be, you know, he wants labor to go back to what it was before. And that's again, that, no yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, I read the whole thing. <laughs> but but like you're saying, it's we're looking in the rearview mirror. And what I've been telling my readers is that maybe this employment target is no longer our natural rate. Maybe is five percent is the new natural rate, and maybe we're gonna have to adjust and change and go a completely different course and all of this is gonna lead to overheating. And I think that's where people think, oh, well, you know, the inflation now, if it is transitory, you know, the Fed's gonna take care of it. No, by the time the Fed does something, it's too late. Exactly. <laughs> so. I, I think you, you put that very, very well. And um, I'm, I'm just playing around. Parker, I think Parker Lewis read all the Fed minutes from the uh, 08 financial <laughs> crisis too. And I, I found his synopsis of that fascinating. I think it was Parker Lewis that. Um, I am a nerd. I was sitting, it was Friday night. I'm like drinking a cup of tea, reading the Fed Minutes. <laughs> yeah, got, got your tea. What, what sort of tea do you drink when reading the Fed Minutes? Is that like Earl Grey or is that like a jasmine tea sort of thing? I, I drink an herbal actually. Yeah, because it's usually before bed. Their words put me to sleep. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, well, I didn't know that about George Mason. That's, that's great. But yeah, it's, it's a very small sect of, of economists, you know, 
you know, think in the Austrian realm of free market, like very laissez-faire capitalism. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's all just a mirage, right? Like no one wants to wake up and be like, fuck, the underpinning of the entire world is, is based on flaws. <laughs> you know, no one, people just want to go to the, they just want to go to their job and want to come home and watch a football game and take their kids out to get ice cream. They don't want to think like, what if everything I believe in is wrong? <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's such, it's such a weird thing to see. Um, and it, 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 different friends and family have taken different durations to come to these conclusions, right? Um, and we all have our own journeys, right? And those journeys are defined based on like how we already think and then learnings that we find along the way. Um, but, the, you know, money is such a, such a deep one. I would say like money and like maybe maybe like religion and uh, like life extension, those all might be combined into like really uh, out there ideas that people just, it's hard for them to either believe in it or, or get out of that belief system. Yeah. And I think it's interesting too, kind of like you're talking about with, you know, not even being able to have sort of a causal mechanism. Again, at Mason, very Austrian school, I, I took a course where we talked all about, you know, the Austrian, um, praxeology and methodological individualism and the fact that you really can't create some sort of aggregate picture by assuming any utility function for any individual and and just aggregating that and saying well this is how it's going to happen like you know the fed can't say well oh well we think allison's going to go shopping and you know stimulate the economy with her check and you know dan's going to save his so we better you know offset that by just giving it to everybody like, that's not it's it's not practical uh, and so it's it's very hard when you realize that a lot of these institutions have these tools that just take some aggregate that isn't representative of any individual, when we all know that individual choice is what governs society and it's what actually leads to the decisions in society. And you have this hypothetical aggregate that is that is the center for all arguments coming out of, of most institutions like the Fed and, and the government in general. Um, yeah, people and people don't want to believe that, you know, to, to like some they, they feel that some data is better than no data, but actually it's the opposite. Some data gives the illusion that we understand what's going on when in reality we have it doesn't get us any closer to the answer. And I think that's kind of the the thing that a lot of people, if you don't understand what economists do or you or you think you go like, oh, economists, that sounds like. Like okay, they know what they're doing. They uh, they work at the Fed. That sounds like a prestigious institution, and there's thousands of them. Well, it sounds like a lot of smart minds are working on the problem. The problem is that that gives us the the false illusion that we, we can know what's going on, that we can control it, which is actually worse than not knowing anything about the economy and not touching it at all, because then we're we're kind of randomly pressing the brake and the gas in the car and we're steering it, and we have no idea what we're doing. So yeah, I think that uh, it's interesting. I bet for your experience, you know, how did, how, how was your experience, you know, talking to other economists from other universities? Like you said that you guys were considered a little bit of an outsider. Can you give us some glimpses to like what degree that felt like for you? So for me, it's interesting because I definitely come from that Austrian laissez-faire background. I like very strongly believe in it. And I really struggled in the beginning with this idea of data, like bad data being worse than no data. And I, cause I, I thought, you know, oh, well we're economists and we're supposed to just measure things. And like, if I don't have data and I can't make these models, then what am I supposed to do? And so I really, really struggled with that first getting into macro and just not knowing, you know, how to handle that or how to deal with that or, or what to do about that. And I ended up, my personal research deviated more into aviation. So I was 
pretty much an engineer at that point, like just modeling efficiency and, and looking at like slot allocation and betting markets and stuff like that. So I became very technical in the sense that I no longer really felt like an economist when I was researching. I felt as if I was just trying to, you know, find efficiency wherever I could. I wasn't looking at individuals. I was doing a lot of micro. But when I went to other universities or I, I went to conferences and I just said that I was from Mason, people would usually go, oh, right, that Austrian school, you know, kind of hand wave. And it's interesting because all of like not even arguments, I would just talk to people because I'd say, you know, I don't consider myself necessarily anything. I subscribe to a lot of ideas, but this is the research I do. So clearly it's not, you know, tied to a lot of like the Mercatus stuff or whatnot, just because of, I don't know, I liked airplanes. And um, the the reason why people would get so angry over it, like economists would get so mad over it was the the lack of empirical work or the lack of, you know, this data analysis. And it was just interesting to me because I found myself even being like, oh yeah, like if I don't have data, then what do I have? And it's something that I struggled with in just writing theory is like, well, you know, you can have these great math models and you can use all this great calculus and that's valid. And then if I don't have, you know, some crazy, you know, regression, then, oh God, it's, and in Austrian, a lot of Austrians still do use, you know, empirical work and, but the focus is more on the theory and the actual mechanisms in the market. So I think the, and there's a lot of Austrian papers on this that talk about how, you know, this heavy, heavy focus in economics on empirical analysis it, that's not how economics was started but that's what it's turned into so it's it comes at a detriment to the field and i think most economists cling to this idea of like having to have data and having to do stuff with data so badly that they end up being extremely misguided in a lot of what they say yeah but it's not data is completely fucking worthless if it doesn't actually answer something to a degree that we're supremely confident that there's a causational relationship you know that's where it's like this this complete charade of data and they have mountains of data and then <laughs> they output an answer and then you you change you you're like hey well you just you inserted a variable in your equation here where you assumed human behavior would do this and they're like yeah and then I'm like then you inserted 10 other assumptions in your model how can you possibly think this is any any has any sort of predictive capability for the economy, it's so nuts, you know, it's like, um, and what, what I think is hilarious too, okay, the people who work at the Fed, pretty smart, but not the smartest. The smartest people work at hedge funds, because you get paid a lot, a lot of money. Now, these hedge funds purchase something called alternative alternative data. Have you ever heard of this sort of data? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this I is have. better data than what the Fed has. They mm -hmm. buy like a billion cell phone users GPS location, right? Mm -hmm. And they buy VPN data and they buy all this data. And that's what uh, these quant hedge funds use to model out human behavior. They have better data than the Fed. I, I worked at one once. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> the machine learning stuff. So yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, they, they take alternative data as data not created by the company and publicized by the company itself. It's, for example, a VPN app could observe how people session on other apps, right? So it's data like that. Or they could buy credit card data and look at how many people are buying Ubers or Lyfts. So with these quant hedge funds, how many of them with this data, better data than the Fed, are beating the market every year? Are they predicting the market is essentially what beating the market means. Can you predict the market before it happens? Very few, very, very few outperform year over year to where they use uh, unfair data advantage and an unfair brain trust and intelligence advantage to predict the market. So if they can't predict the market and they're incentivized to with a lot of money, 
And how the hell are a bunch of people in the Fed who are less capable than they are going to predict the economy with less data, less intelligence, and less of an incentive? Yeah, and I think that's the, you know, if if we were to be able to do that and we were to be able to have this, you know, incredible, this perfect data set, again, this manna from heaven, God's given us, you know, this amazing data set that tells us everywhere we're going, a lot of people's research would no longer be valid. And I've also seen that people struggle with that. And I always joke, my favorite part of reading any paper is reading the assumptions because I can know whether by reading the assumptions, whether or not like this is even relevant to anything, because sometimes they're so crazy. And I understand, you know, it's, and, and that's, you know, the, the difference too between economists, I think, and, and, you know, people in other fields is like, sometimes you do have to assume things just for simplicity to model things out. Like you look at like the money equation. It's like, sometimes, you know, simplicity helps, but there's a point where it's like, okay, let's not assume anything crazy well, <laughs> and well, it gets lost in translation. Businesses can only make assumptions that are extremely well guided because if they make a wrong assumption, they fail and they lose mm -hmm. a lot of money. Whereas the economist person can just insert a random variable to their equation and be like, I fixed it. Yeah. <laughs> there's no consequences to that action. Whereas like, if we're sitting here at Uber or Kraken and we're sitting here and we're modeling customer behavior and we make wrong assumptions, we could miscalculate and the, and the business may be materially different in a year or two based on those miscalculations. And so we have to look at our assumptions and really nail those down going, okay, why are we assuming this? How confident we are in this assumption? Whereas like I find that most academic models just plug an assumption in and it's like loosely defended because how many people are actually going to go read that paper and how many people are going to dig in enough to know that? And then also they're like, well, I needed to make it work. Well, no, that's not how it works. It needs to work or we need to like, you can't just make it work by plugging a variable in. You have to like, you either just go, we don't know what's going to happen or you, you're like, well, we're most confident in these variables. So yeah, I think that's kind of the distinction between the academic side and the execution side and the commercial side of a business, whether that be investment banking or a regular tech company, is you have to make decisions that you can't just plug in a variable and be like, this is good enough. You have to be like, a lot of people looked at this from engineers to data science, product, marketing. We all agree that this is our best possible variable to plug in there and let's go for it. Yeah, it's interesting because you don't see economists updating what they call their toolkit very often. It's, you know, we use the same things to predict the same things and the same. And at what point are we going to, I don't know, I, I'm waiting for there to be like sort of a revolu revolution in economics where people start to realize, oh, like maybe the same things that are leading to the same bad solutions aren't working. Um, but it's it tends to be pretty stagnant in terms of that. So for the central bank, uh, you know, they're going to do whatever benefits themselves and and you know as we all know politicians respond to incentives politicians are incentivized to just push everything off until the next period when they're no longer in office I wrote about this the other day some interesting replies but um with that so so el salvador has adopted bitcoin as a legal tender for me i was like i was really surprised i didn't think it was going to come this soon i i was you know my time horizons were like 10 years out um and so that, I think, has kind of brought up the topic of, you know, the game theory of banks buying Bitcoin, holding Bitcoin countries, making it a legal tender. Do you see this as sort of maybe more of like an ultimatum game where it's like, well, they're just not going to have a choice? Or or do you think it'll it'll be a very, very, like even more gradual than that? Yeah, so I'm going to say an annoyingly trigger word for some people and I'm going to explain it. So this is called game theory. And a lot of people are like, okay, so game theory is basically you're just <laughs> saying like, how does the chess game play out, right? Like how mm -hmm. does 
uh, why, why will certain countries make moves? And if they make that move, what will other countries do to respond to that move? So with Bitcoin, um, you know, the world reserve currency, the U.S. dollar, the United States doesn't feel threatened right now by Bitcoin. Um, Bitcoin hasn't grabbed enough belief system or mind share to be considered a threat. Now, I think that Bitcoin's ultimate purpose is to be a gold 2.0 world reserve currency where no government controls the world reserve currency. It's Bitcoin. Now, other countries have a strong incentive to adopt Bitcoin before the United States, countries that have aspirations to become a world reserve currency like China or Russia. It would be most natural for them to lean in to Bitcoin and use it as, you know, the enemy of the enemy, you know, the enemy of the enemy is your friend sort of uh, thing where, yes, Russia and China are very controlling over their economy, but, you know, Bitcoin is a, a, a tool that they can use to gain political advantage over the United States in a certain fashion, um, a certain economic fashion. Now, that's the bigger, more superpower game, right? You've got like Europe, China, Russia, the United States, throwing a couple other countries in there as well. Um, but on the micro scale with like the smaller countries that are non-nuclear, non-major superpowers, there's some really interesting things that can develop from that, like with uh, El Salvador. Um, I think for these smaller countries, it's still very early. I think I'm a huge fan of what's happening in El Salvador. Um, I do think like as an everyday payment me mechanism, Bitcoin is Bitcoin and the adoption of Lightning and 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 Bitcoin being um, held and understood and believed in by people is too too early for a payments use case. Uh, a, a currency has to go first go through a store of value era where people store value in it and have trust in it before they want to go spend it. Um, also, the price will stabilize over time and become more liquid and become more widely adopted. So terminals that you go to to go pay for your coffee, they'll have Bitcoin enabled. That takes time, and so I think we're a little early for that use case, and that's what El Salvador is, is championing, but I like the experiment. People are allowed to go try whatever they like, but Bitcoin is permissionless after all, so I'm excited to see how it plays out, and I wish them the best. I do think the more practical or, or, or realistic narrative and, and use case for Bitcoin currently for small governments would be to have their local currency backed by Bitcoin, um, or they start to stock up some of their FX reserves in Bitcoin as a hedging mechanism or as a little bit of a speculative hedging mechanism. As Jerome Powell puts it, Bitcoin is a speculative store value asset. So I think that, you know, for them, they could speculate on Bitcoin becoming a true store value asset. And if they're right in Bitcoin 10 or 100 X's, it could take a small impoverished country out of that environment and maybe into a, uh, you know, take a level step up in their standard of living and their capabilities. So. There's a strong incentive for these smaller governments to hop on the Bitcoin bandwagon and take that sort of speculative risk that Bitcoin does become the world reserve currency because it could level them up in the game of uh, the game of country and so the game of life, you know, the game of country. So <laughs> um, I think that that's a pretty interesting game theory to see play out. It's, it's interesting to see these chess moves. I definitely think it's going to be these smaller countries at first. Then the true games you know, kind of like Game of Thrones, the, the, the big arena, the real games begin with the superpowers. So I think that that era is still a little ways away. Uh, but what's interesting about that is that everything is, like we covered before, everything's a belief system and narratives rule these beliefs, belief systems around us, what we all commonly believe in and stories that reinforce that belief. It doesn't matter if any of these superpowers actually buy Bitcoin or not. What could happen is that the narrative that they did begins. And if people believe in the narrative, 
then the other countries will respond to game theoretically to that threat. So even a meme that one of these countries has bought Bitcoin, that enough could create a situation where one eventually does buy Bitcoin. So it doesn't matter if anyone actually buys it at first. It just matters that people believe that one of them bought it. And then that game theory kicks off of like, well, uh, which countries start to buy it? They go, well, if Russia is buying it, maybe we should buy it. Or if China is buying it, maybe we should buy it. And that's where it really kicks off a whole speculative wave. And that's what, what a lot of Bitcoiners you know, think about as kind of the final game theory of all of this is uh, the nations start with their you know, huge money printing operations start to bid up the price of Bitcoin. As they print more money, they start to buy Bitcoin. Um, but that's, that's kind of more fun fan fiction. Not fan fiction, but uh, fan uh, future projection of, of what might play out. Yeah, it's funny. I bring up game theory in every interview. I bring it up a lot in newsletters too, because um, I. So one of my fields is experimental. So I studied game theory heavily, and you know, for Bitcoin, I see these games of asymmetric information, and and it's it's very interesting to watch play out. And so I think that kind of leads into another question I had on you know the gold standard. So when you when people look at the gold standard and they say, oh well, you know, it failed, and some economists and myself, I look at it and I think you know it failed because you know you government couldn't be incentivized to not just spend and give away their gold reserves. When you look at what happened to Germany after World War One, when, you know, they were heavily in debt and they had to pay it back somehow and they, you know, gave away all their, they paid it off with their gold reserves and they couldn't even return to the gold standard. Uh, or you, it, it sort of seems to be this constraint that's not really a constraint even anymore because you have this issue of both government and consumer spending nowadays uh, that is sort of just out of control. So do you think Bitcoin not only is, you know, aiming to, to shape, you know, this sound money narrative, but it's also aiming to, to change like behavior. Do you think that's possible? Yeah, the meme for those who don't know it is Bitcoin fixes this, right? Mm-hmm. So Bitcoin can solve some of these problems of massive misallocations of capital in the economy. Um, and when we think about these misallocations of capital, I mean, we're talking tens of trillions of dollars of value that have been misallocated to poor uses, uh, projects that are very wasteful or going through bureaucracy with overly expensive items or overly expensive um, administration of certain um, you know, uh, donations or social programs. Bitcoin, I think, fundamentally changes the entire architecture of money and government. So governments didn't always control money. That's, that's, it's sort of a newer-esque relationship of like a fiat standard where people just have complete trust in governments without like a gold uh, standard that they've been tied to. And Bitcoin, fundamentally takes that relationship and brings it back to a natural state where governments shouldn't print money because the incentive for the politicians and you know, the rest of the members of the economy to influence that monetary policies is too great. No uh, woman or man should ever have all that power or ever have the power to dictate where that money goes because the incentive to, to allocate it selfishly would be too large. Um, and I think that you know what's really interesting to see is how, you know, Bitcoin isn't just a money, right? Like once you believe in this new money, you start to question everything else about the control of government over various aspects of your life or their response to COVID, for example. And I think a lot of Bitcoiners naturally sided with, you know, no masks or very, uh, you know, um, not anti-vax, but uh, vaccine only if necessary sort of requirements uh, because of this natural distrust, you know, once you wake up or once you go down this rabbit hole, once you take the orange pill and you wake up to this reality, you go, well, wait a second, what other decisions are they making for me? And so I think that, um, 
you know, Bitcoin fundamentally changes the relationship. We're seeing a trend, too, of governments taking more and more control over our lives. And I think Bitcoin is the only thing that is in between them and complete control over the economy and our bodies uh, to a very extreme, uh, scary state. Right. I mean, we're talking about this is way worse than communist Russia. This is like the ability for them to monitor via your cell phone and every other communications device, be able to monitor everything and do more subtle censoring and subtle um, changes in your behavior to where it's more of like, it's not so harsh as like a gun pointed to your face. It's much, much more subtle and a little bit more uh, social, right? And so we're at a really scary spot in the world where we're seeing things become very socialist, controlling your body and your money. And I think Bitcoin is this beacon of freedom where once you wake up to this realization, you're like, no, these are my coins. I self-custody them, custody them and you can... <laughs> Good luck getting them, you know, and I think that self-sovereignty, that that sort of um, kind of reinvigoration of those, uh, you know, very libertarian values is are probably our only saving grace here. Like, otherwise, the world is becoming very scary. I mean, you've got like countries in perpetual lockdown, essentially. Uh, money printer go burr. They're talking about uh, global tax policies. <laughs> Um, talking about demonizing the rich and demonizing anyone who makes wealth. I mean, this is like very, and this is like happening globally. So I think Bitcoin is our beacon of hope and beacon of freedom in this moment. Yeah, I agree with a lot of that. I think the the issues of, you know, government control aren't as obvious anymore and, and people tend to overlook them because they think, oh, you know, they're not controlling what I do or, or where I go. You know, oh, it's a pandemic. I have to stay home or, you know, oh, you know, they're not watching. Why would they care about what I do? And, and it's like these a lot of people don't understand that we all because, you know, back to that Austrian principle of like the individuals make up the aggregate. We're all a piece of the puzzle. And what each and every one of us does does matter, <laughs> especially when you're trying to, you know, I don't know, use data to forecast, you know, future economic trends or, or you know, future financial trends. I think it's it's interesting. And so it's sort of wrapping up with um, a concept that people keep if people ask me a lot about Gresham's law. And so it's usually attributed to uh, coins, uh, like metallic coins, and it's the idea that um, that bad money will drive out good money. So if you have a coin that has, you know, silver and one that has gold, and the the silver is worth less than the gold, people will hoard the gold coins and, you know, uh, spend the silver, and thus driving gold out of circulation. What we saw in like the early 1800s uh, when we were on a like sort of bimetallic standard. Uh, do you think that? Bitcoin, this sort of principle could come about, you know, in terms of like Bitcoin and the dollar or like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies way out into the future. Yeah, I mean, certainly Bitcoin is being hoarded, right? Like mm -hmm. Bitcoin is being hoarded and not spent on daily purchases because people think that it is a better money than the dollar or the euro or the yen. And uh, so, yeah, I think we see that law actively in practice is that Bitcoin is being hoarded, which is a good thing. It's not this bad thing. The word hoard is such a such a harsh word in the English language, too. You know, it's like a very, very nicely woven narrative there of negativity, right? Like hoarding. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. Like same with the N95 masks. Remember that when the COVID oh, yeah. first people were like, oh, no, they're hoarding N95s. I'm like, dude, I bought 10 of these a while ago and you can you can try to come and take it. But and it could be pretty if you do, you know, like <laughs> that like, toilet paper. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're hoarding toilet paper. You're hoarding dollars. You're hoarding Bitcoin. You're hoarding. It's like no, I decided as a consumer to purchase these ahead of time, and just because you don't have them doesn't mean I should feel bad for you. You know, it's a it's a really silly sort of narrative. But yeah, I think that um, 
you know, when we see uh, dollars being printed like this, people want to hodl things like Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin's price is volatile. I don't know if you ever saw that chart that someone showed. I think it was William Clemente, where he showed the price of, you know, the whole the classic Reichsmark uh, exponential mm -hmm. chart. But then he zoomed in to look at the price volatility. So the change, like change, like month over month, it's really intense. You know, it, it looks like Bitcoin, right? And so you can imagine that like gold, like, like if it's a gold to Reichsmark, you know, that's going to fluctuate like this. So people are like, oh, Bitcoin's volatile, but what's actually volatile is the rest of the world. I mean, Bitcoin's protocol and monetary policy is stable. People are just coming in and out of Bitcoin and these, these waves of enthusiasm, but Bitcoin over a long-term trend has, it's going one direction. And so I think that, you know, in this world where people are starting to lose trust in the government, that Bitcoin wasn't going to have this linear function of going from $10,000 of Bitcoin to a million. It's going to have this very choppy path of people coming into it, going, whoa, I really understand its value, that enthusiasm waning, which we're in that moment like that right now, and then maybe a surge again. And, and this will happen over time until Bitcoin either becomes a world reserve currency or doesn't. I think that's a really good point about the volatility, because I think that's that's often a very misguided narrative just in assets in general is that, oh, my gosh, well, look at it. It's going crazy. Look at the chart. It's all over the place. Oh, how why would I put my money in if I don't know what's going to happen and yada, yada, yada. And it's, you know, everything is relative to the actions of the central monetary authority or, you know, the, the global financial world and, and what's actually going on. So I think a lot of times this sort of volatility or this like, you know, there's like this danger attached to volatility a lot of times, which there is. I mean, you have to be careful in certain assets, you know, that you're not, you know, going crazy. But it's important to remember that Bitcoin is a fixed synthetic digital commodity is what I think Seldrin calls it. <laughs> well, yeah, it's also like people perceive volatility as like a singular manifestation of risk. Risk mm -hmm. has different ways to calculate it and think through risk. Volatility is just one aspect of that where people are like, oh, volatile, super risky. It's like, maybe like, you know, like, yeah, maybe it's risky, but it also means that people just could be that, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of information, new information and social value being projected into that price constantly. And that's why it's repricing. So, so frequently, um, you know, it, it's, it's so it, Bitcoin, you know, once you fall into the Bitcoin rabbit hole, it just challenges so many other assumptions you have over how people perceive value. It kind of ruins the world a little bit <laughs> where you kind of Bitcoin kind of ruin it. Bitcoin fixes every, it fixes this, but it also kind of ruins everything too, because then you look at like how journalists report on topics and how uh, academics think and, uh, the folks in power and the government. And then you also see how people value things. And, you know, like uh, there's a constant, constant negative narrative with Bitcoin calling it speculative. Everything is speculative. Seriously, real estate speculative. Bonds are speculative. But the words... Used the cars. <laughs> Do you think the used cars apparently are like 50% more expensive now? I don't know. That came out in the inflation report or something. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So this, this terminology of like volatile and speculative are like two narrative words that are used to attack and undermine belief in Bitcoin. But the reality is like the real world of what's going on is that the mainstream system has intense structural issues and those are being manifested uh, with outflows going in and out of Bitcoin. So, yeah, it, it's funny. Bitcoin just totally challenges all these assumptions that we had over the economy and money and belief systems. And, uh, yeah, it's just really funny to see how humans react to things like volatility and, and words like speculative. Uh, but, of course, they're... Their home that they bought is not speculative. Of course not. No, not, not my home. No, that's safe. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I know housing prices lately have been 
crazy. We had the whole lumber thing. Everybody was, you know, talking about lumber. And I think I think that is a it's a common like it's definitely a tradfi argument, traditional finance for people who aren't hip, <laughs> I guess, to the lingo, the Twitter lingo or whatever. But um, it's it's interesting for me to see just sort of all of these narratives come out that all contradict each other. And when you really think about it, um, they all contradict each other because Bitcoin's decentralized and that's why it's dangerous. But it's speculative and reliant on other things in terms of price so it's just funny because you have these competing narratives <laughs> trying to destroy it well a dollar constantly loses value it's predictably losing value so do you value something that if we look at the dollar over five years or bitcoin over five years the dollar predictably loses value year over year and bitcoin uh, over five years has a phenomenal return but it's a choppy it's choppy path to get there it's just so funny to see human preference for something stable and predictable rather than even if the predictability is a decline rather than something like volatile, but uh, very like, uh, you know, in terms of um, a sharp ratio, like Bitcoin is a phenomenal addition to a portfolio because that volatility and the returns from that volatility are, are incredible. Um, you know, so actually like adding Bitcoin to a portfolio technically makes it safer. Mm -hmm. You know, so that, that's what I think a lot of people just really misunderstand volatility and risk. Yeah, it's 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 definitely been interesting to see. And I think there's been this huge like spur of people getting interested in finance, especially over the pandemic, as people wanted to take control of their finances and were bored at home. And they saw so much FOMO from, you know, the market crashing and then immediately booming thanks to good old Fed. <laughs> but um, yeah, I was going to say wrapping up. Um, you know, we talked a bit about Bitcoin as a store of value versus it actually being uh, something used in transactions. And I joked, too, when Elon Musk first announced that, you know, um, <laughs> he could buy a Tesla with Bitcoin before he took that back. I was like, who is buying? Why? Who is doing this? Do you, if you are doing this, you don't deserve Bitcoin. Stop it. Um, but do you see do you have like a set timeline for when you think there's going to be sort of this shift from it being a store of value to transactional? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a good like it's not it's not like a binary thing too it's like more of a gradual change right like it's a store value store value plus medium of exchange at a little bit plus medium of exchange more plus more medium of exchange it's not like a, a binary switch from store value to medium of exchange um so with that being said i do think like a, a bigger shift to medium of exchange will have to happen over at least another five to ten years another cycle um, just because Bitcoin's not at a high enough market cap, ownership penetration, merchant processing terminals, stability, um, all those things I think are required and, and we're a long ways off from that. So I would say like my definition of that is like Bitcoin being commonly used by almost every hodler as a medium of exchange, I think is at least five to 10 years away. Um, that would be kind of my definition of has Bitcoin transitioned to that medium of exchange era? Of course, there is still going to be medium of exchange usage and people are free to do what they want with Bitcoin. Some people like to spend it. Um, I, as a long-term hodler, I have no idea why you would do that, but you're free to do that. Um, it's a really, <laughs> I, I just personally wouldn't want to do that. Um, so I think that, you know, we're, Bitcoin is, so, you know, and then the final stage here is unit of account. So unit of account is like you know, things are labeled in the grocery store in the price of Bitcoin or sats at that point, right? And we're, you know, 15 years probably away from that. 
money is a belief system. It's going to take a long time for people to shift their trust and belief in, in fiat monies or government monies and shift that into Bitcoin. That starts first with the appetite for uh, financial return. People hodl Bitcoin and see a great financial return. And then because of that, they start to fall down the rabbit hole and start to believe in Bitcoin. And then their money becomes Bitcoin. And that takes time. It doesn't. And, and I think there's a saying that uh, science moves along with the death of every scientist. So like the old, the old people who never believed in the new ideas, the only way that science progresses is them dying. That's, it's that we hope that new science would, through data and through logical thinking, we would be able to produce change in these older types who would go, oh, I see this new future. But actually, or yes, I think it's, yes, science progresses at the death of every scientist sort of belief. I think that Bitcoin operates in the same function. Bitcoin's been around for, was it 12 years now? In 15 years, it'll be, that'll be 37, or yeah, 15 years, it'll be 27 years. So that's a long time. That's multi, that's like a, almost a generation or two. So I think at that point, that's when you've seen like, like I'm the first, I'm 33, I'm the first uh, analog to digital age group. I grew up with cassette, cassette tapes, right? Like I'm one of the, but I'm still young enough to like have grown up with iPhones and um, you know, and, and, uh, streaming music and, and streaming TV shows. So, you know, the ages younger than myself have just grown up completely in, in a digital world. And for B Bitcoin, for them totally is intuitive. Um, and it makes sense that this would be the money that people would use rather than like a government money. That's still very physically oriented, physical government buildings, all this physicality. And so, um, yeah, I think that it's like very natural that, um, I, I think that, yeah, Bitcoin, as when I first got into it, I thought we were going to change the whole world in a, a matter of five years. Everyone is going to, it's so logical. Why don't people believe in it? it? It it takes a long time for people to develop trust and it takes, and a lot of people who don't believe in it are, are very old and they'll, they'll slowly fade away. Um, and then the younger people will grow to represent a larger portion of the economy and also that older folks pass on that money through inheritance and that uh, gets reallocated into things like Bitcoin. Yeah, I think that's a it's a really good point too, especially with, you know, sort of just like this this political shift, this this movement of, you know, we have when you look at the United States Senate, it's like all of the, you know, Nancy Nancy Pelosi isn't she like 81 or something? Like all, all of these politicians are are very very old and and for me, you know, I grew up I'm 23, I grew up with, you know, technology everywhere and, and you know, cryptocurrency is like my first sort of me getting into like the financial world is you know getting into to crypto and whatnot so it's it's interesting because it just makes sense to me but i i find that it, it really there is definitely a, a disconnect and and i don't know a lot of it too i think can be attributed to politicians not wanting to you know obviously give up that power and to, they don't really want what's best for us but <laughs> we already knew that yeah. yeah yeah it's uh it's not it's not this grand conspiracy theory it's just them responding to incentives Mm -hmm. They get power, and that power gives them more money and opportunity and connections, and they're going to leverage that for that. Um, doesn't make them a bad or good person. It just is what it is. It's what most humans would do in that in that position. To believe otherwise would have us believe that they're not human isn't going to react like a human, and I think that's much more illogic. That it's much more logical than just believing like, oh well, humans are corruptible, and almost every human is corruptible. Then put in the, if they were put in that same spot. Yeah, I think it was it was either Adams or Madison. I think it was Madison who said that you know if all men were angels, we wouldn't need we wouldn't need government to <laughs> to guide us. And it's very true. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's all about incentives, and we're all gonna make it. Okay, so stop telling me I'm a top signal on Twitter. You heard it here first. 
<laughs> we just need some more time for adoption. <laughs> People giving you a hard time, Allison? Sometimes I get called a, you know, toxic because I came in right. I think actually I came in in January. So it was right before, you know, it went, you know, I don't it went think you totally crazy. So, no, I, I was, you know, I'd been around before that, but nobody paid attention. So, you know. <laughs> People but, give me crap all the time too. It's, uh, I'm. <laughs> I'm always positive about Bitcoin. So, you know, naturally people, uh, you know, and when the price dips, they get a little bit. <laughs> it's so funny because people I have kind of uh, randos drive by my Twitter replies and I'm like, you know, I've been in this since it was $10, right? And they're like, well, it's easy for you to say, you know, you've been in since $10 or they'll be like, well, how about the people who bought at 60K? I'm like, I've bought the top dozens of times. <laughs> you know, like, it's it's so funny to see them kind of. It's like the it's the same human emotion. It's like I'm on repeat for what was it almost nine years now. It's been like I've been on I've been on like human repeat. Like I'm in like these like Twitter to me and, and talking to people about Bitcoin. I'm in like it's basically like a therapy seat. I'm sitting here and hearing the same complaints and worries and concerns about Bitcoin. None of them have changed. They're just yeah, they might be a little bit different, but a, like a different narrative or something. But it's the same underlying like. Um, you know, underlying issue, but it's just it's just so weird to see it happen over and over. Like Bitcoin's a Ponzi scheme. I still see that now. Absolutely crazy <laughs> to see people say that. Um, anyways, yeah, no, it's been uh, super super fun jam with you, Allison. Yeah, thank you so much. We say we have to set up a bot for you to deal with all that. But um, where, where can people find you? Yeah, so if you're on Twitter, um, if you're if you're an old boomer like me, you can check out Twitter. I'm uh, at Dan Held. Uh, on YouTube, I also have a YouTube channel called uh, Dan Held, and uh, my newsletter. So if you want my longer form content and you want to get it first on Thursdays, subscribe to my newsletter. It's called The Held Report. So if you just Google search that, um, if you subscribe to that on the paid subscription, you'll get once a week uh, letter from me, just a very frank forward conversation. So if you liked my style in this, this interview, um, you'll like my newsletter, which is just me just kind of pouring out my thoughts on random Bitcoin topics. I highly recommend. There's no BS, no skirting around the issues. So definitely. Thanks so much for coming on. It was great talking. Yeah, I had a blast. Thanks for having me. Cheers.